I suppose it again goes without saying that we're each so thankful that God has allowed us the remarkable honor and privilege of assembling together to exalt and magnify His cause and His name. And it is that case tonight that we at the Pippin congregation have come together. And as always, we're not only thankful for the membership at Pippin, but the visitors who've come our way. We hope each of us indeed can be lifted up in the most special ways and prepare us for a week of service in the greatest kingdom of all, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is the case, as we come to this lesson this evening, that it's entitled Ezekiel's Call. And it is the second in a series of lessons taken from that Old Testament book of Ezekiel. I hope that you over the next several Sunday evenings with me will take a rather interested look at that book of Ezekiel. It is a book that at least here in my tenure at the Pippin Congregation, we haven't really delved through that book in a series of lessons. So I trust that this might be of a benefit to each of us as we reflect on the lessons to be extracted from that book that we find nestled in the major prophets of the Old Testament. It is the case, in fact, last Lord's Day evening that we made observation of some of these points. We really used that time to look at the person of Ezekiel. We looked in particular at four attributes, four characteristics of his life, and on that occasion we saw Ezekiel as the prophet, Ezekiel as the husband, Ezekiel as the priest. And of course, Ezekiel first and foremost as that individual highlighted, unfortunately, as a captive. As we looked at all of them, we shall find the appropriate placement again over the next several Sunday evenings to find opportunity to highlight them. But tonight, may I invite you to look particularly at the first three chapters of that book. It might be well to at least consider the fact that we won't look at the book on a verse-by-verse -verse basis. Our emphasis will be a much broader stroke than that. We will take perhaps three, four, or even five chapters at a time and look at some of the major matters to be seen in the character of those chapters. And so it is tonight that the first three chapters will come before us and the highlighted matter that if we could remember one thing about it, it will center around the call of Ezekiel. I trust that as a part of that study, we shall see a tremendous distinction between his call and the way in which we sometimes hear that word used today by individuals who refer to the fact God has called them in one way or another. And I believe we shall see that there are a number of distinctions and in fact significant ones at that. Without further ado, there will be two major matters that come before us this evening as we look at these first three chapters, both of which surround the topic of the call of Ezekiel. It is with that in mind... The topic of this opening slide, as you can see, is the glory of God. It has always been a bit of an interesting thing to me that as you start reading the 48 chapters of Ezekiel, chapter number 1 is in some ways the most perplexing chapter of all the 48 that are to be found. That always was a bit of an interesting thing to me until I was able, perhaps in my limited capability, to put it together in the way that I'm going to attempt to present it to you tonight. There was one major lesson that Ezekiel needed to appreciate first and foremost above all others. There was a singular matter that was to rise like cream above anything else, and that was the matter that Ezekiel needed to appreciate before he could properly preach it, before he could properly embed it in the hearts and minds of the captives before whom he preached. It was an appreciation of the glory of God. 
if that first and foremost was settled in his mind, he then would be a more proper servant to the master, and he would be able, of course, to be a far more productive servant. I would submit to you that the first chapter, as perplexing as it may appear, was a highlighted lesson Ezekiel would never forget. A lesson that he would always appreciate to be in an understanding of the glory, the comprehension, and the magnitude of the God whom he served. It is with that in mind I would invite you to come with me to a look at what might be a perplexing scene, but one which I hope will highlight for us that lesson above all others. The glory of God. In the year 597 B.C., Ezekiel was taken captive. The war machine that you and I know of as Babylon had already for well over a decade begun arming themselves, and they had begun their march toward the direction you and I would call southwest. They, in fact, enjoyed victories over tremendous empires like Egypt. That had happened, in fact, in 609 B.C. We then notice four years later in 605 B.C., ultimately, the war machine again known as Babylon arrayed themselves against Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was no match for them. The people of God had so often appealed to various and sundry means, including God, and He had delivered them. This time their appeals had fallen on deaf ears. This time there was to be no deliverance, but Nebuchadnezzar came and he was victorious. On that occasion, Jerusalem was made a vassal state to Babylon, if you please. Eight years later, in 597 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came again. This time, the characteristics, the individuals in Jerusalem, they had thought that they were strong enough to actually fight off Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar came one more time to put them in their place. Again, they were too weak. Again, God was not on their side, and they again were to be found at fault, if you please, before the powerful machine known as Babylon. Many individuals were taken captive. One of them was named Ezekiel. Here was this noble individual who, in fact, had prepared himself to serve as a priest of God, and yet he had been carried off now far removed from Jerusalem into a place called Babylon. As chapter 1 of Ezekiel verses 1 to 3 tell us, he labored amongst the captives there as they were encamped by the river Kibar in the Babylonian era. You'll notice among the other things that might be said, God some five years later in 592 B.C. called Ezekiel to the prophet. He called and gave him a commission that he was to proclaim and to preach and to lift high the banner of God before this people. As we shall see later in the lesson tonight, as well as in succeeding nights, Ezekiel, I suppose, was among the prophets who had the most difficult challenges and charges of any of the prophets. Isn't it true that some of the prophets, like Zephaniah and others, they labored before a people who still not at yet that point were taken captive. They still at least had the hope that God would save them and the hope that Jerusalem would be salvaged. Ezekiel, at least by the time 586 came, Jerusalem was in embers. The temple had been ransacked and burned. There was nothing left. His charge was to preach to a people who thought God had forsaken them. His charge was to preach to a people who thought that all hope was lost. God is no longer on our side. 
He had the message to show to them that God does still care and you're the one that sinned and you're the reason that you're in this predicament, not him. It is his justice and his mercy that now can salvage for you what you ought to be. But your sins and your iniquities have separated you from him. He hasn't moved away from you. The fault is yours. Think how hard it would be for the people to accept that message. A people who had tears streaming down their face because their parents had been slaughtered and killed. A people who, in fact, not many years earlier had witnessed their beloved temple burned to the ground. The people who thought that God would never, ever let Jerusalem be destroyed. And yet they saw it happen. Think how challenging it might be to put in their heart a fact, well, maybe God does still care. And maybe God does still love us. That's the very mission that God gave Ezekiel. You labor amongst this people and you help them appreciate that I, the God of heaven, do still care, but they need to repent and they need to, in fact, bring their lives back into compliance with what I showed them that it needs to be. We'll see throughout these 48 chapters that Ezekiel had his work cut out for him, but oh, how boldly he did it. Tonight, we have the privilege of seeing the way in which God called him. And as I noted earlier, this message as it relates to the great glory that Ezekiel needed never to forget. As you'll see coming next, we see this lesson I hinted at earlier. The glory of God was lesson number one. Beginning in verse number four of chapter number one and continuing through verse 28 of that same chapter. In fact, all the way to the end of that chapter, it all surrounds what may appear to be a rather confusing presentation. A presentation in which we see things like this. Ezekiel receives a vision from God. It's a vision in which there are many things that captivate us and take our attention. And among the things he saw are these. Ezekiel sees coming out of the north a whirlwind. Not just a whirlwind, however, he sees a cloud, and in the midst of both that cloud and the whirlwind, there is a very strong and mighty and powerful approach of that which does again come from the north. Among all that appears are four living creatures. These living creatures, though, are unlike anything else we see in the book of Ezekiel. In fact, we are blessed on a few other occasions to see things like this in other parts of the Bible. Here is a picture of perhaps what these living creatures look like. Very unorthodox things to say the least. You'll notice as you look at these living creatures, and I'll try to describe a few of the matters as you perhaps look at those scenes. You'll notice that these living creatures had Four heads, or four faces, if you please. One of them was the face of a man. That's the one facing you. The one on the left was the face of a lion. The one on the right, the face of an ox. The one back, on the back side that you can't see is the face of an eagle. Again, very unusual and certainly strange things to behold. You'll notice, furthermore, they had four wings, two of which were used to fly, Two are used to cover or cloak their body. Beyond that, you'll notice there were two arms or hands that looked like the hands of a man. As you appreciate that more fully, you also see something else very intriguing if you'll notice the feet. The text very expressly says that the feet were at least partly like the legs of a man, but the feet themselves 
were straight feet, like the feet of a calf. And so the very feet looked like the hooves of a calf. As you look at all the features and attributes of these living creatures, you again can't help but appreciate the very strange presentation that's there. You might take just a moment and appreciate with me, however, that we do see the occurrence of something not unlike this two other times in the sacred text of the Bible. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel was given visions in which he too saw living creatures bubble and boil forth out of the ocean. And they too had the very similar faces to what are seen in the visions of Ezekiel. But perhaps even more especially when we arrive at the 66th book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we find one more time the appearance of things not unlike this. And perhaps isn't it true that the explanation for what we see in Revelation 13 is the very thing Ezekiel saw here. Namely, the major teaching, even in the midst of the dragon and the beast, of all other things occurring in that book, God's glory reigns supreme. Maybe in light of that, we come again to an interesting observation of what Ezekiel saw. Let me go back those two slides, if I may. It advances too many. My apologies. Again, verses 5 to 14 of chapter number 1, we've looked at those living creatures and already have been reminded of the interesting scene of events that took place there. But you'll notice beginning in verse 15, the vision continues. God wasn't finished highlighting the features and significances of His glory because in verse number 15, there is quickly the observation of wheels, W-H-E-E-L-S. These wheels were very unusual. I'm, I suppose many of us would quickly think about the wheels on a car or the wheels on a chariot or something else that looks like that, but the immediate description of these wheels immediately makes them seem very different. In fact, you'll notice, if I may again rush forward to a picture, here is the best picture that I was able to find that I thought seemingly did any justice to the description of this chapter. These wheels are described as one wheel inside another. And not only that, they were said to have eyes all the way around them. These wheels were very unusual. We do learn almost immediately that these wheels directly corresponded to the motion of the living creatures we just had studied. When the living creatures ascended, so too did the wheels. When the living creatures descended, so too did the wheels. When the living creatures moved forward, the wheels did as well. The two seemingly were perfectly correlated. You and I, perhaps in the midst of all of this, would wonder, what's the message that Ezekiel was to take from both the wheels and the living creatures? We may be at a bit of a loss until we come to verses 26, 27, and 28. It seems to me those verses make clear what the message was. I would invite you to read them with me as we look at what Ezekiel was to appreciate from both the wheels and the living creatures. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man above upon them. 
And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and it had brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. You and I can immediately see that these wheels and a part of the passage in the text that described them noted the quickness with which they were able to move. And the same was true of the living creatures. That message for Ezekiel and for the children of Israel was to be this, the God of heaven is still glorious. The God of heaven is still on the throne. He has not abdicated. Did you notice mention of the rainbow over the throne? The throne of God is still as secure as it ever was. The people in captivity in the day of Ezekiel needed to know that. God had not forsaken them. He had not abdicated the throne of the universe. He was still in absolute and sovereign authority just as He had ever been. Ezekiel needed to learn that lesson first so that he could preach with majesty and might and help them to appreciate the same. Isn't it amazing that it was this unforgettable scene that was used to open the book of Ezekiel? May I suggest to you that all the things we've seen perhaps bring us back to this observation. That throne that I mentioned and the grandeur and greatness of the person of God, that lesson we shall see embedded all throughout this book. But I couldn't help but make observation of one comment that many have made throughout the years as it relates to Ezekiel chapter 1. In fact, if you do some study, research, some commentational kind of comments about that chapter, you may find that there are not a small number of people that assert that this is the biblical record of a UFO visit to planet Earth. Interesting. A NASA scientist by the name of Joseph Bloomrich. In fact, I couldn't help but quote this comment that was made about the efforts of his research. He went from an extreme skeptic to becoming convinced that the book of Ezekiel was a real and accurate and detailed account of an encounter with an extraterrestrial visitors. There are those who think that those living creatures that he saw here in chapter 1 and those wheels that we've already described were nothing more than the actual appearances of a UFO in the ancient days of the long ago. Those who have an interest in that, I will leave it at that and allow you to study it further, but what nonsense. Interesting, isn't it, that there are those who will question many other things about the nature of God's revelation, but yet somehow see a UFO in Ezekiel chapter 1. What grandeur we have awaiting in the 47 chapters that remain. May I suggest to you that as we come to the bottom of that slide, perhaps it's time for a first observation or lesson that you and I might take for our benefit from this chapter number 1. The glory of God. Isn't it true that if the human family had a keener appreciation for and a keener comprehension of the glory of God, there would be far less tendency to rebel against Him. That was the message for Ezekiel, wasn't it? 
God's people had rebelled against him because they had failed to appreciate him, who he was, what he stood for, and the holiness that was his person. If today individuals comprehended, even in an attempt, his glory more perfectly, there'd be less attempt to tamper with his worship services. There'd be less tampering with the nature of what the church stands for and the hierarchy that is to be her government. But because the human family thinks that they are as smart as God and that they are as wise as He, they are attempting to change almost everything about the church. You and I know that far too well. As you'll notice some of these statements at the bottom, the Bible is filled with references to the glory of God, isn't it? Moses had a desire to see his glory in Exodus 33. And you may recall that God put Moses in the cliff of a rock and covered him up and allowed Moses to see his back parts as he passed by. Moses was privileged to at least appreciate somewhat the surpassing glory of the God of heaven. Moses had a desire to appreciate it. What about Belshazzar on the other end of that spectrum? In Daniel chapter 5, verse 23, here's an individual who was privileged to see handwriting on the wall, but he didn't find it very enjoyable once he heard the interpretation. Mini, mini, ufaris and tikel. When Daniel finally interpreted it, we each remember it meant, Thou hast been weighed in the balances and found wanting, because the God of heaven you have not glorified. Here was a man who was a monarch, a ruler of a foreign empire. He had failed to glorify the God of heaven and he was weighed in the balance and found wanting. What an overwhelming lesson. You and I know today in the church we have the prerogative, do we not, of lifting high the glory of God. Ephesians 3.21 reads it like this, Unto him be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Where is then the glory of God to be appreciated if it's appreciated anywhere? Is it not in the church? Is it not in the behavior of you and me as the blood-washed members of the body of Christ? Surely it is. Is it any wonder then that we come to appreciate some of the messages of the book of Isaiah? When Isaiah was called to the prophetic work in Isaiah chapter 6, you may recall that he was privileged to see the temple of God filled with the glory of God. And upon his witness, his envisioning of that moment, what was Isaiah's immediate reaction? He said, I am a man of unclean lips. He considered his own unworthiness. He considered his own incapacity to change anything that God had given isn't it then astounding today that men will tamper with the worship services of the church or tamper with the plan of salvation as if they think that they are on equal par with the glory of God? Shame on them. Shame on any human being who does not appreciate the fact that God's ways are far above our own. Isaiah 55 verses 89, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His thoughts and His ways above ours. That lesson alone perhaps is worthy by itself of so much of these opening matters in Ezekiel. But with them, why not come to yet a second lesson to be seen, primarily in chapters 2 and 3. Once the matter of God's glory was highlighted in chapter 1, 
you may note that the very last statement made in chapter 1, verse number 28 is, I heard a voice of one that spake. After Ezekiel had seen the wheel, and after he had seen the living creatures, and after he'd been reminded of God's glory, the next thing he heard was a voice. A voice giving him instruction. A voice calling him to the prophetic work, and a voice that would set before him the remainder of the work of his life. What was it to be? What message was he to proclaim? How was he to do it? All of that's found in chapters 2 and 3. As we look at them, may I suggest we consider a few of these thoughts. Brother Matt read for us earlier tonight from chapter 3, verse 4. Might I invite you to look immediately at the singular statements given to the man known as Ezekiel. And he said unto me, Son of man, go get thee into the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. Ezekiel was from this point forward set on a lifetime effort, labor, and work of proclaiming what? The words of God. He was not given the task of proclaiming his suggestions, his opinions, his ideas. You, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words unto them. In fact, you may notice in chapter 2, verse 7, just a few verses earlier, it says, And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. Ezekiel was foretold. He was, in fact, prepared that the people weren't always going to be very receptive to what he had to say. They weren't always going to be openly excited about the preaching he had to share. But he was to speak in all ways and in all manners that which was the Word of God. Let's develop that thought more carefully in a very interesting fashion. It has to do with the way that verse number 9 of chapter number 2 unravels before us. And when I looked, behold, a hand was sent unto me, and lo, a roll of a book was therein. And he spread it before me, and it was written therein, or rather within and without, and there was written therein lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. You and I, again, can appreciate this interesting book. Ezekiel saw a hand, and in the hand of this man was a roll, a scroll, as you and I would call it. And the order, the command was given, take the roll and eat it. Ezekiel did as he was told. He took the little roll and he consumed it. He digested it. He thoroughly ate it up. What might that suggest? It is interesting, isn't it, that we see that one other time in the Bible. There were two individuals. That makes a good, interesting Bible kind of trivia question, doesn't it? On two occasions, individuals were told to eat a book. Ezekiel was one of them. John the Revelator was the other one. In Revelation chapter 10, again, the apostle John, while there on the island of Patmos, he too was told, take the little book and thoroughly eat it up. John did just like Ezekiel. He did eat it. Both instances have a similar message. Both were told to preach only that which was the Word of God without any substitution, without any matter that is, in fact, anything other than God's deliverance. You'll notice on this occasion, verse number 3 says, in chapter number 3, 
Son of man, cause thy belly to eat, and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. The Word of God does often bring such sweetness, doesn't it? It is that which truly Jeremiah described in words like this in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. In Psalm 119, verses 103 and 104, wasn't it true there that we read, Thy word is sweeter to my taste than honey. It seems Ezekiel found that also to be true. But before we too quickly pass that thought by, may we keep in mind that a bit later we shall find that the people were so hard and they were so disobedient and so disrespectful to that word that so often it led to bitterness in Ezekiel's heart. It does bring tears to one's eyes when you preach it in love and loved ones won't receive it. When people you care about and those you wish would obey the gospel, they turn a deaf ear to it. You see that so often it's true that what can be so sweet because of the disobedient reaction of others, it can bring such bitterness. Ezekiel knew that and so too did John in Revelation 10. It is in light of that we come back to here and think again about the placement given to Ezekiel. A man who himself it seems so often was beyond tears. He hurt so much for his own people, he was unable to cry for them. He wanted so much for them to again love the God who loved them. He wanted them to repent. He wanted them to turn to the Lord. But they so often would not. Listen to some of these descriptions. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 4. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, and they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. God's description of His own people was not terribly positive, was it? He calls them stiff-hearted. He calls them impudent. That word, by the way, it means hard. It means severe. It means disrespectful. God's own people were disrespectful. They did not honor the God. They didn't appreciate His glory. That was, again, the lesson of chapter 1. Look furthermore later on in this chapter, verse number 6, Ezekiel chapter 2. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee. And though thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. God described His own people like a bunch of scorpions. A bunch of people that would bite your heels and wouldn't lift you up and encourage you. They would try to bite you and tear you down. Isn't that a terrible description? No wonder Ezekiel has to be one of the bravest and boldest prophets we read about anywhere in the Old Testament. He labored amongst this kind of people, trying to help them see and appreciate the glory of God. Thankfully, it appears he had a measure of success, especially when we get to chapters 40 through 48. For now, may we come to the close of that slide and appreciate perhaps finally before the next slide arrives about the great task set before Ezekiel. It is true that this next slide strives to highlight it like this. 
Ezekiel was forewarned one final time. So far, our emphasis in passing has been on the hardness of Ezekiel's message, that they often would be rebellious toward it and they would not want to receive it. We each, I suppose, appreciate that may well up in Ezekiel himself with such a strong note of discouragement that he might give up and he might refuse to preach it. God warns Ezekiel in this chapter one final time. Might I invite you to notice the way that he says it, beginning in verse 15 of chapter number 3. Then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Abib and dwelt by the river of Kibar, and I sat where they sat and remained there astonished among them seven days. You'll notice again Ezekiel was so overcome with emotion he couldn't say anything at first. Perhaps due to the rebellious nature of them, at first he didn't know exactly how to say what he needed to say. The next verse says, And it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way. To save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Ezekiel, if you don't preach it, if you don't warn them, that wicked man will die in his sin, but I'll require his blood at your hand. You've got a message to preach, Ezekiel. You must not forsake it. The next verse. Verse number 19. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness, and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness which he hath done shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thine hand." Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned also thou hast delivered thy soul. Ezekiel, even though they're rebellious, and even though they're stubborn, and even though they may not want to hear, you must not forsake to preach it, and you must not forsake to tell them. May you always, Ezekiel, be a stout-hearted, positive, and directed servant of mine. And may you not forget my glory. And may you be charged and challenged to preach it with all the mercy and love that I've given you. Doesn't that sound a bit in parallel to our charge given today? You and I urged and admonished to preach to those about us. Some with excitement will hear it. Some in rebellion will not. We must not forsake to tell them. Isn't it interesting in light of the New Testament then that we come to the close of that slide as the lesson that I'll use to close the lesson this evening. It is a lesson that highlights not only the power of the Word of God, how that Ezekiel was given that and that alone is the message to preach. In a study of Jeremiah, we would find that there were some false prophets who had some other messages the people enjoyed hearing. The problem is they were false messages. God didn't send them. Ezekiel's message, though it wasn't always a pleasant one, God sent it and it was true. 
Today, you and I live in an age when this is the only message that will get anybody to heaven. My suspicions, your skepticisms, my considerations or yours will do no one any good on the day of judgment. No wonder Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John 12, 48. If you and I believe that, and I know we do, then you and I have our marching orders just the same way that Ezekiel did. And you and I, in the midst of a world that so often seems rebellious, stiff-hearted, and so stubborn, we have a message that we know shall endure until the end of time. No wonder 1 Peter 1.25 says, The Word of God shall endure forever. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that grand? You and I know that the passing fancies of human philosophy will long since be gone. When the debris clears and the day of judgment arrives, this shall stand triumphant. Thanks be unto God that you and I can obey it and find ourselves in solace by it and recognize that on that day our sins can be cleansed and we can rest surely and secure in the blessed abode of the eternity of heaven. As we noted in the lesson this morning, we should, of course, desire to be there. And as we close the curtain on this lesson, aren't we reminded then the sweetness in some ways and the power of Ezekiel's message? We have the next number of chapters to look forward to. Chapters 4 through 7 will be the next subject coming before us on our next occasion of our Sunday evening lesson. I hope that you'll intriguingly look with me into those chapters as we see one more time the unforgettable scenes with which Ezekiel taught those people about the glory of God and His will for their lives. Tonight, what about your life and mine? Have you and I failed in our appreciation of God's glory? Have we failed in our understanding of the enduring nature of His Word? Have we failed in our understanding of our chores as watchmen? When Cain asked the question, Am I my brother's keeper in Genesis 4 verse 9? The answer was yes, wasn't it? Do you and I watch for our brethren? Do we lift high God's glory? If your life has been a disgraceful one in the sight of heaven, don't remain in that condition. The Son of God died on a cross that you might not live that way. You could live more holily, justly, sanctified character. We are told in Titus 2.12 that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. If those words are descriptors of your life, may you live that way until death. But if they're not descriptors of your life, don't leave this building in the hazardous condition in which you are. Things are dangerous. Life is too uncertain. Eternity is too sure. If we could help you tonight in your obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it may be that there's one or more in this audience that has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Perhaps you've heard lessons about God's glory. You've even appreciated it in a way but you've never been prompted to this point to act on it. Why not tonight? There will never be a better night than this fifth Sunday in September, the year 2013. If we could assist you, why not? The plan of salvation is plain and simple. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. From that point forward, live hand in hand with Him every day. When you stumble... 
if it's of a public nature and you need to ask for prayers of brethren, you need to let them know that you are making a change for the better. They'd be happy to pray with you and for you. It'd be a time of celebration and jubilation. If we could be of assistance to you in that way tonight, it too would be a joy. Brother Jonathan has chosen this hymn of encouragement. If this is a time in which the Lord has pricked your heart, by Ezekiel chapters 1 to 3, won't you come while together we stand and sing?